Good morning, Bethel. So good to see all of you on this July 4th weekend, this weekend that we can celebrate the uh, living in the freest nation in the history of the face of this earth, this nation that allows us to come and open God's word freely and teach and preach from it. We are a blessed people. So thank you for being here this weekend. Well, we are continuing in our series in Joshua. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the most profound passages in all of the Old Testament. In today's passage, there is a very peculiar occurrence in the story of the life of the children of Israel that escapes our hearing and understanding sometimes, but it speaks volumes to how God moves in and among us. And so we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5, reading three verses today, um, starting in verse 10. It says, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month and the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna, for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. I'm going to talk today about when the manna stops. You see, the book of Joshua is a story of how the children of Israel came to conquest the land of Canaan and how they began to spread out and identify then and to this day, a plot or a piece of land that had been promised to them by the Lord. The underlying message of the book of Joshua that makes it so worthy of our attention is a message that we ought to hang our hat on every day of our life. And I kind of talked about this, led into it a little bit last week, but the message that comes repeatedly in the book of Joshua is this, God is faithful. God is faithful. That phrase should stir something up inside of you when you think about how God has been faithful to you. What we see unfolding in the chapters of Joshua is God bringing to fruition a promise that he had made 500 years prior to Joshua, that this land of Canaan would one day be inhabited and inherited by the descendants of Abraham. If you read at the time, Abram received it in the earliest onset of Genesis, this promise. To Joshua bringing it to fruition, you'll find that throughout the journey, continuously, that promise is put at peril. But in every moment of this promise being in peril and jeopardy, God proves himself to be faithful and makes a way out of no way. It's in danger when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac. But God is faithful and he places a ram in the bushes and the promise lives. The promise is put in jeopardy when Esau wants to kill Jacob, but God is faithful and transforms Jacob at a place called Bethel, and the promise keeps living. 
The promise is in jeopardy when Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers. But as you read throughout the story of Joseph, God is faithful. God takes him out of the pit and puts him in the palace. And the promise yet lives on. The promise is in jeopardy when after centuries of slavery, there rises a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph nor the God of Israel. And it seems like he is unwilling to relent and release the children of Israel out of bondage. But God is faithful. He rises up Moses with a prophetic voice with signs and wonders that forces Pharaoh to let let the people of Israel go. The promise is in jeopardy when they get to the Red Sea and there seems to be no way as the Egyptian army is bearing down upon them. But God is faithful. God makes a way out of no way and leads them out of bondage on their journey to a place of promise. And even after they come out of Egypt... That promise is put in peril because God finds out that these are some of the most disobedient people you have ever met in your life. They're so disobedient and rebellious that the Bible gives them a term reserved for disobedient folk. It's called stiff neck. He calls them a stiff necked people. Every turn of the journey. They rebel against God. They lead a mutiny against Moses. They worship false gods. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to replace Moses. Who voted on Moses to be our leader anyways? They complain about everything. The sun is too hot during the day. It's too cold at night. The water is too bitter. The food isn't seasoned right. We want some meat. We don't like Moses. Yet, in spite of their stiff-necked behavior, here they are in the book of Joshua at the border of the promised land for one reason. They're there because of one reason. God is faithful. There was no problem or peril or level of disobedience that could challenge the promise that God had made. This right here is a reminder to us that no matter how many obstacles we face, no matter how many people stand against us, no matter how low we seek in life, God is faithful to perform what he has promised to do. So as you read the story of the nation of Israel, you'll see that the issue is never God's faithfulness, because he's always faithful. But it's the people's preparedness. God had a promise ready for them, only to find out that they were not ready for it. So as you read through the journey of the children of Israel from bondage to promise, you'll find that it really is a story about preparation. Everything God is doing on this journey is literally preparing them for the promise that they can't escape because God is faithful. So he leads them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so that they learn to trust the Lord's direction in their lives. He shields them from their enemies 
that would do harm so that they may know that the Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? He brings water out of the rock to teach them that with God all things are possible. The greatest lesson of preparation that God gives the children of Israel who are wandering in the wilderness is manna that we read about in our passage. What is manna? Manna was a food that descended every day from heaven for the nation of Israel for 40 years when they were wondering and wondering how they would make it, where would their provision come from, and how would they be sustained on their journey. Every morning, God sent something to remind them that I'm not just a God who works in marvelous, majestic miracles like parting the Red Sea, but I'm a God that provides for you every single day. I don't want you to just worship me on the mountaintop and the sea opening moments, but I want you to realize that every day that there are resources that show up in your life because I'm a daily bread type of God. That's what he's reminding them every morning when that manna was on the ground waiting for them. So many times in our church, and in our lives, we reserve our praise for marvelous, majestic things where we need God to open up the heavens and work in miraculous ways. But God said, I'm looking for some people who walk in and know that even if I hadn't opened the sea and the door hadn't been opened, that there's some daily bread in your life that you ought to be thankful for. How often in our lives are we recognizing every day God's faithfulness to us? He says, I need some people that today already know he's done something that's worthy of thanksgiving. Has God done something already this morning in your life that's worthy of thanksgiving? I'm seeing a few heads nod at me. Has God already done something this morning that's worthy of his thanksgiving? Yes, he is a daily bread God. Listen, he provided the children of Israel daily bread, and they called it manna. Here's the strange thing about manna, is the word is not a noun. It's not a name. Manna is really a question. An accurate translation of the word manna is what is it? <laughs> what is it? The people of Israel didn't know what it was. That's what they called it. That's what manna really means because God provided it in the middle of their uncertainty and they could wonder was, what is it? When you are uncertain how things are going to happen and the Lord provides anyway, when you can look back in your life and say, how did we get here? How, when we were so down and out, God got us here, we should shout, it's manna. God providing daily in your life, and you have no explanation of how or why God did what he did, and if you know that you ought to be able to holler that manna. When he made a way out of no way in your life, manna. 
when he gave you a job and you didn't even apply manna, when there were 10 offers on the house that you wanted to purchase, but yours was the one that was accepted, manna. When there was a check showed up in the mail and you didn't even know that they owed you money, manna. When the doctor says, I have no explanation for your healing, manna. God has done some things in our life that have left us scratching our heads to which we should look at it and say, we serve a daily bread type of God that provides for us daily. The children of Israel have been eating this manna for some 40 years. Now that's a long time. 40 years of eating this manna. When they get to the promised land, Moses passes and Joshua takes over. And they're getting ready to invade Jericho and they've come over the Jordan and they're about to have the infamous battle with Jericho where all they have to do is shout and the walls come down. We're going to look at that in the coming weeks. The Bible says that before they make that move, something miraculous happens. The manna stops. Not out of punishment, but out of preparation. They're about to walk into their promise and God stops the manna to show them how really faithful that he is to them. Now, Lord, I'm sure they thought, why are you doing this? This is how you have been providing for us for 40 years. We're getting ready to go into battle with all of these different nations. Why stop the manna now? Let me drop a few ideas on you that you can marinate this next week as we think about application for this passage. God stops the manna, so your desire for God is greater than your need for God. God says, I've got to cause you to want something different than what you've had. Let me illustrate it this way. I had some blood work done a little while ago for my work. My work gives uh, discounts on my health insurance if my health is good. And so my blood work came back and it wasn't the greatest. I had a little bit of cholesterol issues, some triglyceride issues. And so before I go to see the, uh, the people that do the, the health discounts, I thought, let me get this cleaned up a little bit. So I had to change my diet, no red meat, no fried foods, no egg yolks, all of that kind of fun stuff that I love eating. It's difficult for me, when you know my love for Chick-fil-A, not to have a good Chick-fil-A sandwich. So I gave up beef and pork and fried foods. And if you've ever been on a diet, you'll know that changing your diet is one of the hardest things to do. The reason why is because your diet is linked to your desires. Your diet is an expression of what you hunger for. So the Lord says to the children of Israel, the reason I've got to change your diet is because I've got to change the desire of your heart for you to want something different than what you have become accustomed to. The problem God has with the children of Israel is always made manifest in what they hunger for. While they're walking through the wilderness, this is what they say to Moses when they want to go back to Egypt. They continually say to Moses throughout the books 
the Pentateuch, they'll say, we like the food in Egypt. We don't like manna. We don't like the bitter water. We want what we used to eat in Egypt. So their diet had an expression of their desire. They said, we want the garlic and onions we used to eat in Egypt. The diet in Egypt was heavy on garlic and onions. That diet was symbolic of bondage. And let me pause here and tell you something that everyone in this room already knows. People that have a heavy diet of garlic and onion have a foul odor whenever they open their mouth. Do they not? If you have a lot of garlic and onion, I like garlic and onion, and I'll eat. I have no problem eating raw onions. I like them. But if I've had that, my wife will tell me, stay away. You smell oniony or garlicky, stay away. You can tell people that are bound in Egypt because every time they open their mouth, something foul and offensive comes out, and it's showing you what they are still connected to. They're always negative, always criticizing, always complaining, because they're bound, they're still in bondage. So do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor and go, are you still in bondage? Anybody have any garlic and onion this morning? So the Lord has been giving them manna to try and change their desire for bondage in Egypt. But watch. Now watch the transition. They move into the border of the promised land, and the Bible says the Lord cuts off the manna after what? After they eat the fruit of the land. They've gone from garlic and onion to manna, and now the fruit. The Lord is saying, I'm transitioning you to want something even better than manna, which is the fruit that comes from the promised land. Garlic and onion is pugnant, and fruit is sweet. God is saying, I'm not, God's saying, I'm trying to change your desires to want something better. Let me tell you something interesting. This is the second time that they have tasted the fruit of the land. If you remember the first time in Numbers chapter 13, they send spies into the land, and the spies come back with some fruit of the land. And this is the second time they have tasted the fruit. The Lord says, here was the problem the first time. The first time you ate it, you treated it like a sample. This time, it's an appetizer. You had it before, but you thought it was a sample, but now I need you to see it as an appetizer. Some of you guys might not understand the difference between a sample and an appetizer. Let me explain it to you. When you go to Costco, the difference between a sample and an appetizer is at Costco, they'll give you a little, bit of, a little tiny cup like this with a little bite-sized taste and tell you to move along. But if you go to a restaurant and you sit down and order an appetizer, they give you this appetizer, which is to say, when you taste it, don't get up and leave because that's not the end of the meal. 
That's just the beginning of the meal, and it's meant to whet your appetite for you to desire what the cook has waiting for you in the kitchen. So every blessing of God is not a sample that you walk away from. That's what the prior generation of the nation of Israel did. They tasted and they walked away and wandered in the wilderness for 40 more years. An appetizer is meant to whet your palate for something greater that God has in store for you. The issue that Jesus picks up on when he talks about this issue in the Gospel of John is that over 40, the 40 years, the children of Israel just wanted manna and nothing more. Do you want more of God or just enough? The question Jesus asks is, what do you desire from God after you've got what you need from God? Everybody wants God when they need God. There are people that are here today because they need something from God, and they're hoping that the Lord is taking attendance. I'm here, God. See me? Now it's your turn. The Lord says, I need you to grow and hunger for more than just your needs. Do you have any desire for God? When God has already met your needs, do you desire holiness? Do you desire righteousness? Do you desire a deeper relationship? Or do you only come to God when your bills are overdue and your health is poor? Or when your marriage is on the rocks? Is your desire for God greater than your need for God? So we see that God stops the manna so your desire for God is greater than your need for God. Number two, God stops the manna to put a new demand on your faith. You cannot go to new levels or relationship with God with the same level of faith you've had. Every new level or intimacy with God requires a new level of faith in God. Faith is the key that unlocks the door for the next place that God has prepared for you. And if you only trust God at this level, that's where you will stay with God. God will never take you to a place that is greater than your faith in who he is. God says, I need to put a new demand on your face because the faith you operated with, with manna in the wilderness, is not the kind of faith that is going to sustain you through the battles in the promised land. Now, you're not going to eat manna. You're now going to eat fruit. And here's the difference. The manna, as we talked about, just showed up every morning. The fruit will require you to take some seeds and plant them in the ground. So you need faith that knows how to work. This level of faith requires that you appreciate the gift of a seed and know that if I got a seed and some faith in God, that's all that I need to produce the faith that is going to sustain me. Listen, every time you grow in God, it doesn't mean that things are going to get easier. No, sometimes all you get is a seed and you've got to learn to work 
that little seed that God has given you, and if you work it, it will grow into something and your faith will grow. God says, I'm not going to give you the job, I'm going to give you the interview, and if you work it, it will turn into something. God says, I'm not going to give, put you in a, at a position of a manager, but in an entry-level position, if you know how to work it, it will turn into something. All you have to do is work the seed that God has given to you. We need a faith that works. So your faith needs to learn to work because when we grow with God, it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. For some of you, I just messed up your Christianity. Because you thought the longer you came to church, the more scriptures you memorize, the more songs you listen to on ZD 88.3, that your walk with God would get easier. And God says, no, honey, that's not the way it works. The longer you've been with me, the more I expect of your faith to go to work. Why do we need a faith that works? We need a faith that waits. You see, manna showed up every day, but it went away every night. God told him you can't, except for the Sabbath, you can't keep and store up the manna. It'll go moldy, but I'll provide more manna for you the next day. Seeds have to be sown, and you have to wait on a seed you've sown to produce fruit. And here's what the Lord is saying. In the wilderness, you got used to everything coming to you in a 24-hour window. Now I've got to see that you've grown to the place where you've got enough faith to endure a waiting season, believing that even if it doesn't show up tomorrow, that I have faith that it's on the way. Our faith, many times, needs to learn to wait on God. Our faith at this level can endure when God says no. Our faith at this level can endure some dry seasons. It is the immature saint that quits after the first sign of trouble, but it is the mature believer that can wait, knowing that God is working for my good and for his glory. So, God stops the manna to put a demand on our faith. And number three, God stops the manna to have a new delight in your heart. God is saying, I want you to rejoice in something more than manna. The Bible says the Lord stops the manna after they eat the fruit of the land and after they've celebrated the Passover. He didn't stop the manna until they knew how to celebrate the Passover. You see, this is only the fourth time that the Passover celebration has been recorded in Scripture, and it's the first mention of this generation of Israelites celebrating the Passover. The Lord says, I'm going to cut off the manna after you all have come to the place where you can finally celebrate Passover. Now, for some of you, that may not know your Bibles, let me tell you what the Passover is. It's a celebration of what passed over. <laughs> I was kind of kidding there, but there's some truth there to that. It was the nation of Israel looking back on their days in Egypt when the death angel was sent and every house, every home, the doorpost that was covered by the blood of the spotless lamb, the death angel passed over. 
the death angel passed over the homes of the children of Israel because they followed and were obedient to the command of the Lord to take and put the blood of the spotless lamb on the doorpost. But the Egyptians did not, and so the death angel took the firstborn son from each of their homes. So the Lord says, I'm going to stop the manna and give you the fruit when you have enough good sense to stop and realize that the only reason you are here where you are is because a little while ago there was a death angel that could have knocked on your door but because I'm faithful and I covered and I protected you you were passed over you were passed over you see when Jesus died upon a cross you see he was our spotless lamb that was shed for our sins so that when we trust in him Death and hell passes over. We have eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord in heaven. The celebration of Passover, you see, was not only a celebration of what God had done, but it was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do with Christ upon the cross. Here's the difference between this generation that God is speaking to in our passage that's going into the promised land. You see, this is not the generation that came out of Egypt. According to the Bible, there's only two people that came out of Egypt that entered into the promised land. Those two people are Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else is gone. This is not the generation that saw the Red Sea. This is not the generation that knew Pharaoh these are their children. So God says that the difference between you and your mamas and your daddies was that your mamas and your daddies knew all that I had done for them, and yet they complained. They knew how good I was, and all they did was complain. They showed up to church every Sunday and sat there like a bump on the log, like I had never done anything for them, and all they could do was get mad that the service went too long. God says, I need people who can look back at what I've done by sending my own son to be a sacrifice, to be a propitiation for your sin. And give me thanks because I know that my sin is passed over with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When I think of the goodness of God, when I remember what the Lord has done in my life, it gives me a new delight in my heart because God, He promised he would send his son to save us from our sins. The nation of Israel was looking for that Messiah all throughout the Old Testament. They were looking and waiting. Why? Because God is faithful.
If we want to grow, we need to ensure that our desire for God is greater than our need. We need a new demand on our faith. And we need a new delight in our heart. Let's pray.